Well, again, if you're just hopping on and you weren't here at the beginning, good morning. Uh, my name's Dave. I'm so privileged to be able to serve here at Calvary uh, as one of our elders and as the teaching pastor. If it's your first time joining us or I just haven't had the opportunity to meet you, at, meet you yet, uh, welcome. We're glad uh, that you're here and we pray that this service is going to be a blessing to you. Uh, the, four, the first four books of the New Testament are what's called Gospels. Uh, they are the good news about a person, the good news about Jesus. And the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are referred to often by some people as the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means to see similarly, so to speak. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, their, their content, is, it kind of overlaps with one another, and they are, there's a lot of the things that are included in Matthew that are also in Luke and also in Mark. But then there's the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John. It's not part of the synoptic gospels, but it is a gospel. And it's, it's uh, certainly as they all are, it's very powerful. And, and we want to dive into the book, the gospel of John today. We're going to begin in the very first verse of the very first chapter. And there John writes this. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. That word that is translated into our English word, word, enough ways to say that, right? Kind of get lost in it. It's the Greek word logos. Logos means in, in classical Greek, uh, both reason and word. Some have suggested that the translation actually thought may be the best English equivalent for this Greek term, since it indicates on uh, the one hand the faculty of reason uh, or the thought inwardly conceived in one's mind, but on the other hand, it also uh, conveys the thought outwardly expressed through the vehicle of language. The two ideas uh, of thought and speech are certainly blended in the term uh, logos and in every employment of the word. In philosophy, in scripture, uh, both concepts of thought and its outward expression are, are very closely connected. Logos is a, is a principle, actually, that uh, originated in classical Greek thought which refers to, in the, for the classical Greeks, it referred to a universal divine reason. It was intrinsic, they believed, in nature, yet it transcended all oppositions and imperfections in the cosmos and, in fact, in humanity. It was, an, in, in their opinion, in those, those classical Greek philosophers, they thought it was an eternal and unchanging truth that was present from the time of creation. And that, that thought, that, that logos, was available to every individual who might seek it. There was a philosopher, you can kind of see how we got even the term philosophy. His name is Philo. And Philo lived, he was actually, uh, would have been somewhat of a contemporary of Jesus. And in fact, John, the writer of this gospel, he lived between th uh, 30 BC and 50 AD. And he used the, the term uh, logos. He's oftentimes referred to when you do a study of logos. And for him, it was, and, and by the way, he was a, a Hellenistic Jew, which means he was a Jew, but he was heavily influenced by Greek culture, by Greek thought, by the Greek language. And so he was very Greek at the same time that he was uh, Jewish by his ethnicity. He, he used the term logos to mean an intermediary divine being. That's how Philo defined it. He followed the, the platonic distinction uh, between imperfect matter and perfect form, and therefore he thought these, these uh, intermediary, intermediary beings were necessary to bridge this enormous gap between God and the material word, and that's how he understood logos. 
The Lagos, he believed, was the highest of these intermediary beings, and it was called, actually by Philo, ironically, the firstborn of God. He also said, and this is a quote from him, the Lagos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts, and it prevents them from, be, from being dissolved and separated. The concept, this concept of the Lagos and what it was, had a crucial and a very far-reaching influence upon philosophical thought, of course, as you can hear, and even Christian thought. The term has a very long history, and the development, in fact, if you do, would do a study on it, you can get way more than what the four or five minutes that I'm going to give you about Lagos today. Maybe it will intrigue you to do some more study of it on your own this week. But it definitely, in, in, its, in its long history, the development of the idea, it, it, it really embodies uh, the unfolding of man's really kind of conception of God. To understand the relationship of the deity to the world in many ways has been the goal of all philosophy, especially if it has any religious sort of tone to it at all. While diverging views as to the divine manifestation have been conceived over the years, the Greek word logos has been used with a certain degree of even agreement by a series of thinkers and scholars to express and define the nature and form of God's revelation. So as John's gospel begins by using the Greek word logos, in the beginning was the logos. Again, in our English Bible, the word. As his gospel begins by using the Greek word logos, it may be best for us to think of it as he's beginning. As a, 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 in terms of like an, an undefined greatness and majesty. For, for what John is doing, I believe, is he is using this ancient principle to connect with the readers of his day who mostly spoke Greek and would have been um, uh, uh, understood this reference to divine reason, this reference to logos, but John is going to define it for them. So he begins by almost just stating it as something that exists, this undefined greatness and majesty, and he's going to define it for him, and he, John, is going to connect it with the nature and existence of God and Jesus Christ. He was inspired by God to do this. And so John, my suggestion to you is, as he begins this gospel, sets out to define this undefined greatness. To define for those who maybe had a little bit or maybe a lot of, ex of exposure and understanding to this concept of logos, John is about to use it to show them the nature and existence of God and his son, Jesus Christ. So in John's use of the logos concept, the principle, the idea, the philosophical uh, sort of uh, ideology, we find that the logos, the word, is first eternal. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, the interesting thing about the construction of the Greek in these, in these particular couple of verses is it is, is constructed in the such to imply that the logos always existed and never didn't exist. He always existed, he always continued to exist, and there was therefore never a time in which the Logos didn't exist. And so that would have, actually that would have kind of flowed with 
a little bit with that, uh, you know, um, a platonic thought, a, a little bit of that philosophical ideal of logos, even though it, 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 uh, it breaks from it a little bit because it seems like there was this idea that the, the logos was, was the first created thing, so to speak. And as, as you remember, uh, Philo uh, defi- used the term the firstborn of God uh, to, uh, to describe the word logos. But here, John, in, in the use of, of the, and his, his construction, is indicating for us, again, that the, the logos is eternal. There, wasn't, there was never a time in which logos didn't exist, and there won't be a time in which it doesn't moving forward. So as such, the next conclusion that, you, that, that John wants his readers to come to, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the second ideal there is not only was, if the Word is eternal, then that means the Word, the Logos, is divine. The Logos is divine. He was with God in the beginning, but not just with Him. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this, this idea that, again, that John wants to begin to propose to the readers of his gospel and to us today is that as he I believe in it, and he's going to define it, and we're going, to, we're going to see it in just a little bit, as he begins to help his readers to understand not what the Logos is, but instead who the Logos is. He is identifying the who as one, as a being who is eternal. Not just this, this concept, not just this abstract concept, but John now is beginning to humanize it and, and help us to understand that this, this word, this word is a person, and this person, he is eternal, and this person is divine. One of the affirmations we make about Jesus that Scripture teaches is that, is that he is fully God. This is one of those passages that support that theology and in in, in, uh, addresses Jesus' deity, because as we're going to, as we're going to see in a minute, it's, it'll be clear as to who John is saying the Logos is. So the word the Logos is eternal, has always existed, and will always exist. As such, the word, the Logos, is divine. John goes on to say in verse 3, All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. You can see in, in, the, in the verse before it, and in, the, and, and in this verse, again, John's use of the personal pronoun, pronouns, he and him, rather than it or that, right? So he's not referring to it as, this, again, this concept, but he's referring to this logos as a person, and, it, and he says here that all things were created through him, and so now we see that not only is logos eternal, and as such, if he is eternal, he is divine, and because he is divine, he is creator. All things were created through him. John later uh, repeats it, so to speak, down in verse 10, the kind of the second phrase in verse 10 of chapter 1, when he says, the world was created through him. So what John is doing just in these first couple of verses is John is proposing that Jesus, the Logos, is eternal, he is God, and further, all creation came about by and through him. Why do we say it is through Jesus? Because the next statement that John is going to make about the Logos is the one that, that I'm going to bring out as we jump down a little bit further in the text, is the thing that's going to kind of turn uh, his first readers, if, if they weren't followers of Jesus, if they, they, he's going to turn them on their ear a little bit, and it even uh, challenges us to understand this reality. And that is the Word which is eternal, the Word which is divine, the Logos, which is creator, 
John says about that logos in verse 14, the word, the logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So not only is the logos eternal and divine and the creator of all, nothing having been created that isn't through him, but the word is human. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know from the Gospels that one of the names for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now this understanding that, again, Jesus, from what John says, and just in these verses, but throughout the New Testament, that Jesus is one at the same time, in one person, in one man, in one human being. He is both fully God and fully human all at the same time. He's not half God, half human. He's not a little bit more God than he is human. He is 100% human, just like you and I. The Word became flesh. Jesus stubbed his toe. Jesus probably cut his finger. Jesus got colds, I'm sure. Jesus had times where he, he battled uh, things that would affect all of us. The only thing that we know from Scripture that diverges from the human experience and the experience of Jesus, the human, is this. He didn't know any sin. And by no, I mean K-N-O-W. He knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. Where we are sinful, he is sinless. But outside of that, everything that we experienced, he experiences. Jesus is the Word incarnate. Word, the Word became flesh. The Bible says that in, in, in so doing, that as God took on flesh, I think that there's this emphasis in the teachings of Scripture that what we, what we understand is then as we follow the life of Jesus, as we see his, his teachings, as we see his character, as we see his, his personality, as we see everything, what we begin to understand is when we see Jesus, we see the fullness of God. We also recognize that in experiencing all of, human, all of the human experience, Jesus is a high priest that can empathize with us in our weakness. He empathizes with us because he understands the human experience. Was he tempted just like we're tempted? Absolutely. Like I said, the entirety of the human experience Jesus had, except for the fact that he didn't sin. So the Logos. The Logos is eternal. The Logos is divine. The Logos is the creator of all that we see and don't see. The Logos is a person. And I would suggest to you that what John is saying is that Logos is Jesus. The second part of uh, this idea about who this, uh, who this person is that, Jesus, uh, that John is referring to is not only is he word, not only is he Logos, but he is life. The word life occurs 36 times in John. It's interesting that uh, that's more than twice the times it occurs in any other New Testament uh, uh, book, whether it be a gospel or one of Paul's letters or uh, part of the writings of, of Peter, any of, the, uh, any of the other books. More than twice of any of the other books, John has an emphasis on life. In verse 4, you can see at the very beginning of verse 4, it says, uh, in him, in Jesus, was life. Jesus said about himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. John says, in him was life, and that life was the light of man. The word for, for life is zoe. Uh, we know, uh, m maybe you know some, uh, have a friend or family member whose name is Zoe. Uh, zoe literally means life. It means literally life. It means figuratively life. 
It, it, it implies a, a fullness of life. It, it apply, implies the real and genuine life, a life that is devoted uh, to God and blessed by God. Jesus is Zoe. He is life. He is life in its fullness. He is the embodiment of all that life is to be. As one uh, scholar wrote, uh, as I was doing study for this week's talk, one scholar said this, for John, his life was Jesus. It reminded me of something that another biblical writer said. Paul said, I no longer live. I no longer have my life. My life is no longer my own. In fact, Scripture says that to us about our followers, that our life is no longer our own. Paul says, I, I don't live any longer, but instead I've been crucified. I have died to myself. And now the life, the life I live, I live through the one who lives in me. For John, for Paul, for the calling for us is for Jesus to be life. In him was life. And he looks at us. He looks at us in our, in our struggle. He looks at us in our doubt. He looks at us in our pain. He looks at us in our desperation. And he invites us John 14, 6, he invites us. He says to me, to you, to all of us, I'm the way. I'm the life. You're looking for life. You're looking for your life to have meaning and purpose. You're looking for life to make sense. That doesn't mean it's going to be free of of struggle. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be things that come into our lives that are difficult. But in Jesus, there there is a life that goes, rises above that and is deeper, something that is more deeper and, and, and significant than just Life as a progression of linear moments. I get up, I get ready, I go to school, I go to work, or I go to my living room because I don't, can't do any of those things right now. <laughs> and then I do that for a while and maybe I have a little fun time and cut, do a couple of Zoom meetings. Maybe I have the opportunity to hang out with a friend or two, something like that. And I eat some food, do some chores, go to bed, get up and do it all over again. That's not life. In Jesus, that's life. It makes everything come under a different purview for us if we understand that in him is life. And I would just suggest, I know this sounds a little bit bold. If in Jesus there is life, everything else is basically death. Not saying we're not still living, but the life we lead is death and scripture said it ends in death. The life without Jesus is death, and so Jesus invites you today to embrace him as life. As I said in uh, verse 4, went on to say, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so that, that next image that, that, Paul, that John's going to use, he's going to, again, the word, the logos, uh, that's, that's clear, and, and hopefully you understand what he means by that and, and how he defined it, uh, that Jesus was logos, he was word, Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. Jesus is light. Uh, the word here is the word phos. Um, it literally means luminescence, luminescence in, in the widest and most uh, broadest application. It can mean luminescence or light in terms of natural or artificial light. It can be uh, concrete or abstract. It can be literal or figurative. It is light. It, it actually comes from an obsolete Greek word, which is phao. And phao meant to shine uh, or make manifest, especially uh, by rays. And so this idea of, of phos is something, and we understand that. We have, we have words like photosensitivity, 
Photosensitivity is an extreme sensitivity to the rays of the sun, to ultraviolet, uh, the ultraviolet rays. And so we, we understand that word. We understand what it means. And John says, Jesus is, what did it say in verse 4? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. G, uh, the, John goes on in, in verse 9 and says this, the true light that gives light to everyone, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus said about himself in John 8, I am the light of the world, and those who embrace me will experience life-giving light, and they will never walk in darkness. Light, just as life is, just as the word life is a very prominent theme in John, like I said, it's used 36 times, the, word, the concept of light and darkness, excuse me, is another very recurring theme in John. We see it in chapter 1 here, we see it in chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, uh, 9, 11, and 12. So in the, especially in the first half of the Gospel of John, the, the word light is a very prominent theme. And we even see him picking that up in his, the first letter that he wrote to the churches, 1 John, in that letter, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, both have uh, very strong and prominent uh, features of the word light in, in another uh, uh, writing of John. So this idea of light, again, is a, is a prominent theme. Jesus says that he is uh, uh, the light of the world, and, and, those, and those of us who experience that life-giving will never walk in darkness. And that kind of begins to kind of introduce this idea of the, the contrast that exists between, again, if in Jesus is life, all else is death. If Jesus is light, then everything else is what? It's darkness. It's what John is trying to help us to see. Verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness. And yet the darkness, and this, this, this verse has lots of translations. This particular one that I'm reading says, what did not, the darkness did not overcome it. You might have another one that says, comprehend it. I wanted to show you the Amplified Bible, which tries to bring out all the possibilities for that understanding of that last word. In the Amplified Bible, it says, the light, meaning Jesus, shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not understand it, or overpower it, or appropriate it, or absorb it and is unreceptive to it. So I, I share that Amplified Bible, uh, that verse from the Amplified Bible, because I think it helps us to understand the point that John uh, was trying to make. And we're not, we're not sure exactly which word is the best translation. We just don't know. Uh, you can read good scholars that would argue for each of maybe of those translations. But it's clear, what I think is clear from the verse is, there is a battle between light and darkness. We know that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said the God of this age has blinded, right? Paul says in the New Testament that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't what? What can't they see? They can't see the light of the glory of the gospel which is found in Jesus. The light. I am the light of the world. If you, if you embrace me, you experience such a life-giving light that you're no longer walking in darkness. But unfortunately, this contrast, the light, the light shines in the darkness. The light came, the word became flesh, and as flesh, as he took on flesh and, and embodied the fullness of God, he came as light, as a light to the world. He called himself that. And as it shines on, the darkness is opposed to it, doesn't understand it, tries to overpower it, but can't, doesn't, doesn't appropriate it, doesn't absorb it. It's basically unreceptive to it. John gives this kind of a, statement that again causes us to understand that contrast between the battle between light and darkness. He says it this way in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world 
didn't recognize him. Why don't we recognize him? Why don't we recognize him for who he is? The eternal, divine, creator, God in the flesh. Why don't we recognize him as he is? As life, zoe, fullness of life. Why don't we recognize him as he is? Light, light for our lives. Why? Because many of us, even, maybe even some of us watching in this, uh, on the stream today are still covered in darkness. Every human being is wandering around that darkness. The darkness of their own desires, the darkness of their sin. It is only by God's light-giving and life-giving power that that darkness can fade away and we can see Jesus for who he is. We don't figure that out on our own. We're dependent upon God opening our eyes to see that he is the true light. Otherwise, that, what's, that affirmation that John makes in verse 10 is going to be something that we would say about our own lives. He was in the world, and though the world was created through him, I didn't recognize him. I didn't recognize him. I saw what he did, and, and, and those first people, those ancient people who lived, who were contemporaries of Jesus, experienced that in the flesh. They experienced the, the eternal logos. They experienced Jesus as life. They experienced personally him as light, and yet they did not recognize him. So the thing that I think that John is kind of drawing down to here, as he's used these three very powerful words, and again, they're going to they're gonna, Come, uh, come out in so many ways throughout this gospel. Jesus as word, as light, as life, we either, we, we begin to see that Jesus is the way that is first, for many people, going to be rejected. That's kind of the bad news of it. He is rejected. Verse 11 says, we already saw in verse 10 that the world did not, did not recognize him, right? We saw the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is opposed to it. Verse 11, John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He wasn't received, but instead he was rejected. He was rejected. The ultimate story of Scripture, I would share, I, I would posit to you this. The ultimate story of Scripture is to take every human being to a place where they understand the person of Jesus and come to a place where they are going to receive him or reject him. Today I pray that God might be doing something in your mind and in your heart right now that would draw you to a place of not rejecting him, not being like those people that he came to. When it talks about his own people, it's talking about him first coming to his nation, Israel, the Jews. They did not receive him, but he goes on to say in verse 12, John goes on to say, but all who did receive him, but all who did receive him. So the second option, it, it, it doesn't have to end, and it's not, not God's desire that it would end in the bad news, that it would end in the bad news that we, didn't, that we don't recognize him, that we don't receive him, but instead, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh, 
or of the will of man, but of God. To all who did receive him, he does this amazing thing. This eternal logos, this true life, this true light who comes to us in the flesh so that we can understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. If we don't reject that, if God opens our eyes and we can see clearly the identity of God as it's found in the person of Jesus Christ and receive him, God then reclassifies us. We go from people who are not dead but alive, not walking in darkness but walking in light, not being people who aren't a people, but we become the children of God. All those who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. He reclassifies us as his own. And he's the one that can do it. Why is Jesus the one who can do that? Because he is the eternal, divine creator, God in the flesh. He is the one who has both the authority to give life and in his truth is light for our lives. He did that by taking on that flesh, walking that perfect, sinless life, and dying a death for every one of us. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We will be reclassified. We'll be moved into the identity as the daughters and sons of God himself. But that only comes through one way. And that one way is not an abstract sort of philosophical principle, but it's a person. Jesus is Logos. He is word. Jesus is Zoe. He is life. Jesus is Vos. He is light. Will you receive that today? Maybe you have received that. But you're kind of like, to be honest, if you just, you know, if we were just talking one-on-one and you, you were comfortable enough to really share your heart with me, you would say, I, you know, I, I, I may have received him at one point, but I, I'm really not walking in that reality. Maybe he's inviting you to re-embrace him at a level that perhaps uh, has not been indicative of your life, your spiritual life in a long time. I want to lead us in a prayer time. For those of you who would like to offer your, to receive that truth that Jesus is that life-giving Savior, you can pray along with me. And maybe if you have walked with him, but you're kind of struggling in that relationship right now, maybe you'd want to join in that prayer as well. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for this truth from John that your Son is the eternal God in the flesh. Your Son is the one who can give life. Your Son is the true light. 
Today, Lord, I come to you. I want to receive that. I want to receive that new identity, that reclassification that you promise here in this first part of the Gospel of John. I confess to you, Lord, that I am walking in darkness at times. Maybe I have only been walking in darkness for my entire life. And I want to turn from that, God, and turn to Jesus as the true light and the giver of life. So I acknowledge the darkness of my own sin. And I want to receive his work on the cross to give me new life. Thank you for your grace, which makes all of that happen. I come to you in in faith, receiving Jesus as Savior. Amen.